Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Wally, a fresh view on gospel living. Okay, thank you again for joining us. My name is Emily McIntosh. And I'm Wally Goddard. And today we are going to be talking about parenting. Wally, I'm so excited about this episode. I know that you had a couple different ideas for titles and there was different reasons behind each one. I would love to hear what you came up with. Yeah, you know, it'd be nice to talk about peaceful parenting, mainly because it's so aspirational. Most people aren't experiencing peaceful parenting. And I like the idea. I think good parenting can be uh, more peaceful than it usually is. But, but you know, it's not just about peace. It's also about being effective. And it's also about timeless principles, about some, some truths, some discoveries that apply in a whole broad range of situations. So I thought, hey, Emily, why not call it Principles of Effective Parenting? What do you think? I love that. That's great because we all want to be effective parents. And I love the idea that there are principles, timeless principles that we can follow and that that will help us be more effective parents. Let's talk about it. Great. Okay. So tell us what's the very first principle of effective parenting? You know, I think it starts like a lot of things with being a healthy person. Somebody who's really enjoying life and finding it to be meaningful and purposeful is just going to bring so much more to parenting. And I am not saying that you're um, uniformly in bliss, that you don't have any faults, that you're perfect. I'm only saying that that you're solving problems and moving forward and feeling like life is meaningful and purposeful. So not perfect people, but maybe purposeful people. Wally talked about this in our third episode on happiness. That might be a great one to listen to first as kind of a foundation in this discussion about effective parenting. So that's the first principle, to be a healthy person, purposeful people make better parents is what I'm hearing you say. That's right. Yeah, that's the way I see it. Awesome. So the second principle is about having compassion. So think of um, think of us as, as islands and um, the, the parent is on one island and the child on another. And, and we really can shout at each other. We can, we can shoot um, rockets at each other. But unless we build a bridge, we're not going to be really connected. And so the second one is that compassion connects our worlds. It's the bridge between my experience and my feelings and your life experience and feelings. And, and so compassion is so, so important. Mm. I can definitely think of times where I've been in the thick of parenting, and it's been can I admit that it's harder to have compassion than at other times? Can you talk to us a little bit about that when we're in the thick of it and it's hard? I mean, I mentioned to you an experience I had this morning where I was maybe less compassionate than I could have been. You know, do you have any tips for us and and how to have more compassion in those difficult moments? Well, that's a great question, Emily, because we all get a lot of wiring or programming in us by the time we get to parenting. You know, we're somewhere probably in our 20s or 30s when we have children. And and we've developed uh, a whole set of responses to life and circumstances. And they're pretty automated and, and hopefully pretty adaptable. And then along comes a person who doesn't know our rules and doesn't live by them. 
and we we keep reacting with our automatic reactions, sometimes quite unaware of what this situation is like for the child. That's why compassion is so important. I like to say we need to see the world through our children's eyes. And when we do that, all of a sudden, what they do starts making a lot of sense. It might not make sense for me to do what they do, but it makes total sense for them to do what they do. So compassion is that bridge connecting our world with their world. So would you suggest in those moments that I ask myself, okay, what is this situation like for them right now? I'm just trying to think, what would the question be? I think I think we reprogram right from the very start so that we think of irritation as an invitation. When I'm feeling irritated, upset, unhappy, I think, oh, 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 you know, what I what I just experienced is not very compatible, very comfortable in my world, but maybe I need to get out of my world. And very often, very often, those reactions will be so immediate and so strong that we do not stop them. And, and you know what? We're humans. And uh, it's a appropriate to apologize sometimes to our kids and say, you know, I'm sorry. I I just kind of reacted there and I hope you'll let me start again. Mm. Um, but but I would say that that while we will not be perfect, we can start working towards being more in tune with their world and thinking, oh, think how hard that is for you. I'm so sorry. You must be hating this situation. And and when we start doing that, it starts building that bridge. So I'm hearing you say um, that even though the first principle is to be a healthy person, you're recognizing that we're not going to be perfect. Absolutely. <laughs> even when we're healthy, that we're not going to be perfect. And so in those moments where we struggle and we, we're trying to have compassion, like I did this morning, but I, I wasn't super successful. It could have been worse. It could have been better. Yeah. <laughs> but but that I can I can then apologize and say, hey, you know, I was in the thick of it and I wasn't exactly tuned in to what your experience was. And I can apologize and that's kind of the start of the repair of the rupture is what I'm hearing you say. Absolutely. And children generally will will really appreciate that for their parents to say, hey, I respect you and I value you enough to, to, to want to make that repair instead of just get over it. You know, I'm the parent. Um, it's really a very connecting statement. And tell us what that does for the relationship. I feel like it really helps the relationship to grow. And and interestingly enough, I think it helps the kids get, helps us get on the same page. Yes, yes, it does. And uh, it also starts a process in them where they start to see us as real people instead of these great power figures who ride into their lives and are pretty frightening. When they start to have then compassion for us because we've had compassion for them, everything gets so much better. So we're modeling compassion. So having compassion is the second principle. That sounds like it's a pretty foundational principle. Let me give you an example, Emily, of how we sometimes approach compassion unhelpfully. Like I, I think about when our daughter, Emily, was in kindergarten and, and she had a good friend, Donna, who lived across the street one direction. Across the street, the other direction was the elementary school. And pretty often, Donna would come over and knock on the door and invite Emily to go with her over to the playground to play. And, and that was great. It was so nice to be so close to the school. One particular day, Donna came over and knocked, and we gave Emily permission. The two girls headed for the playground. As they got to the street, our Emily stopped and looked for traffic. Donna did not. 
Donna went dashing out into the road and was hit by a passing car. The good news, such as it is, is that um, the car had been traveling slowly and saw the two girls and the car managed to get mostly stopped, but still hit Donna. She went flying some distance and skidded into a painful heap right there on the road in front of us. Mm. Now, now, if we're very much on our island, in our mode, in our way of thinking, we might march up to little Donna and say, Donna, I'll bet you you've been told a hundred times to look before you cross the road. And so you're going to be learning a powerful lesson today. We could just stand there with our hands on our hips and think about just what a learning experience it is for Donna. Now that's heartless, isn't it, Emily? Absolutely heartless. Yeah, it's just hard to imagine that response to somebody who's in pain. That, however, is what we sometimes do is we are quite unaware of the pain in the child's life. And so maybe we say, okay, Donna, you're going to have 15 minutes here to think about how foolish you were. And I hope you really learn it this time. And I hope you never make that mistake again. Or, or we might respond with compassion. We might enter Donna's world and say, oh, no, how frightening, how scary, how uncomfortable. I am so sorry, Donna. And we immediately do everything within our power to try to help Donna. We send someone in for a damp washcloth to put on the on the road rash. We send for her parents. We offer words of comfort. We also call for whatever medical help is appropriate. Because when someone is injured, we minister with care and love. We don't preach. Now, it's kind of obvious in a situation like that where a little girl has been hit by a car. What's less clear is when a child is hit by life, by, by you know, rejection from peers or by an accident of some sort, social accident, do we offer the same compassion that we would if a child were hit by a car? I'm afraid we, we don't. Does that fit with your experience, Emily? Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And I hear what you're saying that it sounds absurd. Like we would never, you know, if my child was hit by a car, I would never say, okay, you're going to learn from this lesson right away. But I think of all the times in life where I have done that, like you're saying, with social experiences or whatever. And I kind of maybe take the attitude of, well, that's life. Get over it. And what I'm hearing you say is that those experiences can be equally as painful almost as being hit by a truck. Oh, yeah. And leave the kids confused and frustrated and feeling injured. And then when we start to scold them, think how alienated they feel. The person who is supposed to be the healer, the designated healer in their life is instead mm-hmm. rubbing salt in the wound. And um, I don't think we think about that as parents, that, that children count on us to be the healers. One of my favorite stories is by that famous psychologist, Heim Gannat, who tells a story about two girls, two cousins, who spent the summer together and had a glorious time. Susie lived in a distant city, but had been allowed by her parents to come and spend the summer with Carol. So these two girls slept out together, and they went to the store together, and they played, and they laughed. These two 12-year-old girls just had the time of their lives. But inevitably, summer ended, and when it ended, then... Susie had to go back home, and Carol was just miserable. Carol just thought she was going to die. So she says, just moaning, she says to her mom, Susie's going away, and I'm going to be all alone. So, okay, do, do we see the comparison? 
she's feeling injured by something that to us seems, you know, just routine, simple, no big deal. Uh, we've dealt with that. She ought to be able to deal with it. But mom responds, look, Carol, you'll find another friend. Now, <laughs> hmm. that's not very sensitive, is it? No. Carol replies, I'm going to be so lonely. Mom says, you'll get over it. Carol starts to cry, oh, mother. And mother says, you're 12 years old and still such a crybaby. You know, if she really wanted to do it well, mom could say, when I was your age, I had 27 friends moved away and I survived it and I'm better for it. So buck up, little cowboy. Oh. Yeah, you know, that's, um, that's really rubbing salt in the wound, isn't it? It is. And I'm thinking about how, you know, I hear this story of, of a young girl and I can see how that that would be like a logical place for for parents to go of like, this is life. You're going to get over it. You'll learn from it, whatever, move on. But then I also think me as an adult, I would never say that to a friend like or someone that I know or like a sibling, a peer. I would never say, oh, you'll get over it. That's fine. You You know. It, this is just life. I would never say that to another adult. And so why does it seem that for a kid, it's fine to say something like that? It's interesting. Yeah, we really dismiss their feelings. We mm-hmm. we dismiss of their childishness. We want them to, to get over it because it's so inconvenient for us. And it really doesn't make any sense unless we have built that bridge to their world and we say, oh, yeah. I mean, these two girls were so close. What if mom had said instead, oh, the house must seem so empty without Susie here. Or it's so hard to imagine going forward when you've had every day together. Or, you know, just any of those expressions of how hard it is to make that transition when you feel so strongly about something. Yeah. And as an adult, I've had a friend move away. And I'm not embarrassed to say I've shed tears over that. And that all I wanted was that validation and recognition that it was a hard moment for me. And so why wouldn't our children need the same? Yeah, yeah. You don't need your husband to come home and say, hey, look, you're, you're a grown-up. You can handle this. Get over it. Yeah. Wow, that really diminishes the experience, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. And it really feels disconnecting. Yeah. Yeah. Gannat tells another story that I love. In fact, in his great book, Between Parent and Child, he probably tells a hundred stories that I think are amazing. The other story is about uh, a mom and her teenage daughter who were in an art gallery. And the daughter said, oh, I don't, I don't like this art. And it happened it was abstract art. And the mom might easily have said, oh, like you're an art critic. So this, is, this qualifies to be in one of the great art galleries in the world, but you don't like it. I mean, that would be a diminishing response. But instead, mom says, oh, you don't like this kind of art. I wonder if you like representational art. And the girl said, what? what is representational art? And mom said, that's when a house looks like a house and a person looks like a person. And maybe that's the kind of art you like. And the daughter said, yeah, that's right. Mm. That's the kind of art I like. Mm. So notice that instead of turning against the child and, and banging heads with them, we instead stand next to them and look at their world and try to imagine what they're really trying to tell us. What a difference that makes. Mm. So we're really getting to know, it's an opportunity, an avenue for us to even get to know our children more, is what I'm hearing yeah, you say. Yeah, yeah. One more example about compassion, and I, and I dwell on it because 
compassion is so fundamental. A mama called me recently, a wonderful, amazing, insightful mom called and she said, this morning my kindergartner was just so pouty and didn't want to eat breakfast and didn't want to get dressed. And so I just tried to be cheerful and, and push him along a little bit. And, and, um, but he just, he just seemed so pouty. And when I went in his room, he had turned over all the pictures of me. He was clearly mad at me. And, and she said, what did I do? You know, I was just trying to be kind and, and helpful, but, but notice what maybe didn't happen. She maybe didn't enter his world and say, okay, something went wrong. Maybe he had a bad dream. Maybe he just woke up feeling out of sorts and we've all done that. And so instead of, um, instead of just kind of nudging him forward, what if mom says, son, you are dragging this morning. Would you come over and sit on my lap for a minute? Now, I'm not saying that that's the right solution for every child. The, the wise parent will know what is right for that child. And for many, it will be, hey, come here, son. Will you sit on my lap? And can we just, can we just snuggle for a minute and take a break? Because you've got a day ahead of you and you're not feeling ready for it. And I just wonder if I can hold you. So that kind of thing might help the, the child make that transition. That's having compassion. I like that. And it, it also brings something up for me. It makes me uh, think of connective parenting. I want to be a connected parent. Yes, yes. And related to that, often we are very disconnected from their world. We are going about our world so mindful of our own. And so we don't take time to, to enter their world. I, I think one of the almost universal problems of parenting is failure to tune in, failure to notice what life is like for them, what they're worried about, what their concerns are, what, how, um, how much they're enjoying this, that, or the other. We're, we're so absorbed in just kind of pushing things forward that we don't notice what's happening in their lives. And, and um, wow, what a difference it makes when we just pause, pause our duties and activities long enough to say, hey, how are they doing? Let me just notice how their weather is. Is it stormy in their soul or, or is it sunny? And, and when it's sunny, maybe we say, isn't it a beautiful day today? And when it's a little bit stormy, we stand by them and uh, reassure them. But not that cheap reassurance, but the presence of being there and saying, hey, I want to be here for you. Okay, so what would the cheap reassurance look like? <laughs> Just curious, so I know what to not do. Oh, yeah. Well, I think it would be like saying, you're going to be okay, or don't be a baby, you're tough. Um, yeah, the, anything that uh, dismisses or diminishes the child's pain. The way the way John Gottman talks about it is he says, sometimes we we dismiss or disapprove of children's emotions. We dismiss it and say, oh, that's no big deal. You'll get over that. That's not a big deal. Or we even disapprove. We say, stop being a baby. Um, the other re response that's unhelpful is we are laissez-faire. We, we care a lot and we want to help, but we don't know what to do. We're paralyzed, which of course leads to a discussion about the healthy way of responding, which is what he calls emotion coaching, which is so important that maybe we want to have a whole podcast on that one about yeah. how to do emotion coaching. Yeah, that would be great. So this is what Gottman calls emotion coaching and parenting? Yes. Uh -huh. and, and he has a book called Raising an Emotionally Intelligent Child. And it's the best book I know of on emotion coaching, though 
Gnats does the same thing without calling it that, and it has more stories. So if you want the science, you go to Gottman. If you want the stories and application, you go to Heim Gnat. Okay, great. And we'll put links to both of those in the show notes. Those, those sound like really great resources for us parents. Yeah. So I think we've said that this bridge, if you want to be effective in their world, you need that bridge that connects your world to theirs. But that, that just uh, leads naturally into the third principle, which is nurture. Nurturing children. When children feel safe and valued, they develop well. They are healthy, balanced people. They're more likely to make good decisions. They're more likely to feel like life is good and they're safe. And, and that's, um, that's a big thing. You know, Emily, that in the marriage research, Gottman has found that five positives for each negative best predicts that a relationship will thrive. It's not some magical thing. It's the positivity that makes the difference. And, and many psychologists are saying that same thing applies to parenting, that if we want our children to develop and feel safe, they ought to be getting that preponderance of positivity, five positives for each negative. And it means spending time with them and asking them questions and taking the walk around the block and maybe just sitting on the couch and laughing and reading a book. I mean, it's it's about that time together. It's that, that feeling that um, in our world, they are safe and valued. I love that. Feeling safe and valued is the key to development. Yes, it absolutely is. Now, you know that there's like a little complexity in it, that each child wants to be valued in different ways. So so our son Andy loved it when we spent time together. We could play a very bad game of tennis, but we just laughed and had fun together. Emily has always loved her projects. So when we would join her in a project or take interest in her projects, it was it was made a big difference for her. And, and then Sarah loved a little note. You know, if we slipped a note under her door for for her to find Boy, she just loved that, and she she loved those little expressions expressions of appreciation. So each child has their own way that they like to be loved, and and guess what? The only way to figure it out is to pay attention, and that kind of ties to the compassion, doesn't it? It does, and I also just had the thought that if I'm thinking about okay, I I have three children, and if they have three different love languages. The beauty of being a parent is that I'm learning three different love languages. Hopefully, I'm becoming more fluent in all of these different ways of of uh, speaking a love language. And how cool as a parent that that's it's going to develop me in that way. I love that idea. You're going to be multilingual. You are multilingual, and and that will help you in all relationships. And of course, the the most intense relationships are generally with our family members. So when we get tuned into our spouse and our children. Boy, it just makes us better ready to say, oh, you know, maybe the reason I've been missing it with so-and-so, my neighbor or friend, is because I I haven't really been paying attention to to his or her love language. Mm-hmm. I think uh, if I can just share, when I was in your home and your sweet wife, Nancy, she picks up on love languages so well mm-hmm. that there's things that she did that I didn't even realize I needed or wanted until she offered it. Isn't she I great? Just, what? She is so fantastic. And I just thought, wow, I want to be more like that, where I'm yeah. so fluent in the different love languages that I can pick out what someone needs, maybe even before they know what they need. That's, yeah. that's a real skill. She is so tuned in. That's what she really, I think, is superb at is because in some ways, 
she doesn't have such a big agenda in her own life. So she just really watches and listens to and cares about the people around her. And it's just wonderful. You, you ought to live with her. It's just, <laughs> it's just a joy. We were not there quite long enough. I thought we need longer here. <laughs> For sure. Yeah, but she's a joy. She's just fantastic. Yep. I love her. There, I do have a favorite story about love languages. It's um, and, and about nurturing in general. It's a story about a kindergartner. A kid shows up at school one day with a little note pinned to his jacket. And he walks around the classroom showing all his classmates that he has a note. He is so proud of this note. Little Terry just thinks, yeah, I have a note. <laughs> so, so he walks around the classroom and eventually the teacher spots the note and says, Terry, you have a note. And he said, yes, I do. And she said, would you like me to read it? And he said, yes, I would. So the teacher removed the note and read. <laughs> Terry was unhappy this morning because his sister had a note and he did not. And now Terry has a note and he is happy. <laughs> and I guess the reason I love that story is because sometimes we say, hey, Terry, you don't need a note. When you need one, I'll give you one. But this mother was wise enough to say a note would make Terry happy and he would know that I love him. And so, so many things we do in our lives are really just about saying to someone, yeah, you impact my life. You make a difference. And, and I accommodate you. I want you to be a part of my life. And I want you to know how important you are to me. It encourages me as a mother to get a little creative and a little out of the box. Yeah. And kind of like you've said, quit thinking about just what my agenda is and get creative and see what ways that, I mean, it probably took that mother 10 seconds to write a note. Yeah. Whereas she could have spent 10 minutes fighting about the fact that he didn't need a note. Sometimes just getting a little creative, you know, leaning in and moving a little bit in their direction. Honestly, in, in so many aspects could actually be easier yes, yes. <laughs> than fighting for 10 minutes about the note. Anyway, that's kind of what struck me when I hear that story. And, and so you combine being tuned in with the compassion and you just kind of see what the child needs and you say, hey, you want to snuggle for a while? Or, hey, you want to go out and play ball for a while? Or, you know what? Why don't you and I sit down and have a snack together? I mean, just we tune in and then and then we customize our messages to fit the needs and preferences of our children. And what a powerful effect that has. I love how that's sowing seeds. I mean, we talked about the marriage garden and sowing seeds within a marriage, but really every relationship, right? Is, that's right. Is a garden. And so as a parent, I feel... Like these moments are sowing seeds for my my relationship with my children that hopefully will blossom in new ways in new seasons. I love that metaphor, and I, I love the idea of planting seeds to to really be even more connected with our kids. One of the funny things about this nurture, this this loving, is that the research is very clear that you can do any parenting technique you want. You can use any style. You can do all these different special tactics. And nothing matters as much as whether that child feels loved. It is what we call the super factor of parenting. Nothing matters as much as whether that child feels loved. Now, notice the little trick there. It isn't whether we love them. It's whether they feel loved. So we have to do the things that communicate to them. We have to speak in their language. To shout at a child, I love you, does not have a wonderful impact. But 
to to um, adapt our lives to them, to communicate to them in the way that they value, that they are vital to us, they are cherished by us. Wow, what a difference that makes. Wow, that really strikes me. Um, it's not whether we do love them, it's whether they feel loved. Yeah. So if we as a parent are not speaking their love language and so they're not hearing it, we could love our children a lot, but if they're not feeling that, that's on us. It happens a lot. It happens a lot that parents love their children dearly, but they either don't know how to or don't get around to communicating it. And uh, the children still feel isolated and lost as if their parents did not love them. Wow. Yeah. That's prof- that has profound consequences, I'm sure. It really does. Yes. Now, should we dive into the fourth principle? Mm-hmm. Yeah. In the field, we call it guidance. And, and this... Um, may not make a lot of sense to people. It's not, well, you know, what is guidance? And it's not, uh, it's not quite the same as discipline. Because often when we're thinking about uh, parenting, we think, what's the best book on discipline? I need to learn how to discipline my children. Um, discipline is not uh, the way we think about it in the field. We think of it as guidance. And, and the way I think about it is, it's helping our children learn how to use their agency. That is the objective of all guidance. It's not to keep them out of jail. It's not to teach them to conform. It's not to get them to get along with other people. It's to teach them how to wisely and sensitively use their agency. And, and so it's like that trick in, um, in nurture. It doesn't count unless they feel it, unless they feel loved. So in guidance, all our techniques don't make any difference unless we're helping them to activate their own agency and become agents in their own lives. And so much of what we do is really about um, lecturing, punishing, torturing. You know, it's about controlling children. And it doesn't necessarily teach children how to use their agency. You know, we have all these objectives that are, you know, they're useful. But the point of guidance is to help children to activate their agency, give them experience in making decisions and seeing how those decisions play out for them. In some ways, it's learning the law of the harvest. But it's not by learning the law of the harvest, by being the grim reaper who comes along and torches their crops. It's, it's the kind of person who helps them see, hey, when I do these things, it works out well for me. When I am friendly to other people, they're more likely to be friendly to me when I, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. Mm. Gosh, I'm kind of letting that sink in a little bit. Okay. So the objective, really, you, you said that sometimes we have these other objectives. Really, our, our main objective should be helping them to learn to use their agency. Exactly. And let, me, let me give you an example of that. that um, uh, there's a guy named Holden who studied mothers and children in grocery stores. And um, he found that there are two general styles of parenting in grocery stores. One is reactive. We take children in and and notice the failure of compassion. We take them in under a false premise. It's only going to be a minute, so you just chill, and I'm going to grab the things we need. Now, notice how that's a false premise. It says that somehow um, you ought to set aside all your needs, all your wants, all your interests, while I take care of mine. And and we kind of lie to children and say, I'm only going to be a minute. And on average, I think the, the visit to a grocery store is about 33, 34 minutes even when we think it's only going to be a minute. So, so we enter saying essentially, 
Um, I'm going to ignore your needs, and, and I'm asking you to be the adult and take care of mine as I go grocery shopping. I want you to keep your hands to yourself and not notice anything and not worry about anything and make no demands or requests on me. Is, is this going to turn out well, Emily? <laughs> no. And, and so in reactive parenting, parents wait until something goes wrong, you know, like the child grabs the eggs or the child grabs for a candy bar or something, and we get, we get angry and we set a limit. But, but notice that's reactive. We waited for the child to misbehave, and then we got angry. Now, you might guess that that's not the most effective way to enter a grocery store or life in general. The better way is what, what Holden calls proactive parenting proactive. So as we enter the grocery store, we think, okay, we're entering an environment where everything is interesting to the child and most of it is edible. And the child is hungry and tired. And and if I don't do something, the child's going to have a hard time. We're not going to have a good experience together in the store. And, and so maybe the parent is wise enough to take in a toy or depending on the age and the maturity of the child, maybe the parent invites the child to help. Maybe the says, hey, Will you help me pick out which canned vegetable we're getting? Or, excuse me, would you be willing to uh, look for those one-a-day vitamins that that we get you because we need more of those? Or will you help me check things off the list, my shopping list? Or notice all of those are ways of engaging the child and getting them to work with us in the same pursuit. And, and, you know, there's always the perennial issue of, do I buy them a treat or not? And um, I, I think there is no magical answer to that. What we said to our kids was, hey, when we go to the grocery store, we're not going to ever in the course of your mortal lives buy you a candy bar to be eaten while in the store. Just so you know, we want to be really clear. But if you want some animal cookies or a piece of fruit that's um, – that we can buy for you, we'll we'll do that. We'll be glad to get you one of those to respect your needs. But we just want to be clear so we don't have to discuss the candy bar issue till the end of time. I mean, how many times have we seen parents saying, I will not buy you a candy bar. I will not buy you a candy I am not. And then, you know, two aisles down, we see the child with a big chocolate smile <laughs> because the, the parent um, made um, a rule that they weren't quite willing to enforce they also maybe didn't respect the needs of the child. The child ramps up their demands mm-hmm. and the parent caves. Well, mm-hmm. there's a better way. Decide where your boundary is that is sensitive to the child and then get the child involved with you and respect the child while um, at the same time working together to, to meet the demand of finishing your shopping. I mean, on a small on a small scale, I learned this principle. I stumbled into it because our local grocery store has a sign right when you walk in saying, children are welcome to a free piece of fruit <laughs> when you're shopping. Isn't that great? Yeah, when you when the children uh, can get their needs met, what a difference that makes. And you can see how the the whole difference of entering the store saying, hey, these little people have some needs. Let me be sure that we're meeting their needs. And, you know, I, a parent may decide they can have up to one pound of chocolate. Um, <laughs> I think that's probably excessive. But, but um, you know, the, what the rule is doesn't matter as much as that you have set a reasonable rule, that you enforce it, and that you get the children involved in some way that will help them to be occupied instead of bored and frustrated. 
So you're clear in uh, what the experience is going to be for the child. You communicate that clearly to the child. So the children know what to expect, but you're also respecting their needs is what I'm hearing. Yes. And and that's really at the heart of proactivity is that I've entered their world. Remember, we're back to compassion. I've entered their world and say, okay, how hungry or tired? I mean, sometimes we might decide, hey, it's right before dinner and we could make dinner without the thing I'm going to go buy. And the child is hungry and tired, has been in school all day. You know what? We're going to skip the grocery store because it would just be a war zone today. Let's not do it. And that's proactivity when you think ahead and say, hmm, how would I respect the child's needs while at the same time respecting my own? Mm-hmm. And, and um, th- that's not the only way, but, there, but maybe uh, it's one way of addressing where the child is right now. So that's proactivity. I, I would also say that along with that, that's the preventing problems. There are also in, in research three kinds of control techniques three ways we control, manage, limit children. And, and the first of those is what we call power assertive. It's when we essentially stand toe to toe and say, you'll do it because I say so. Or if you don't do it, I will make you suffer and you can count on that. So that's the uh, power assertive approach. And you will not be surprised to find out that it, that it has certain results. When we use power on children, when we live by the sword, we die by the sword. Children use their power to become passive or to become aggressive, to, to um, rebel against us or to just say, hey, okay, I surrender my life. You run it. I, I'm, I don't want to – we don't need two kings in, in this kingdom. So, um, you know, that's, there's the power assertive approach. There's a second, and the second is um, – is where we do love withdrawal, love withdrawal. And, and that, that term may not be immediately uh, obvious in its meaning, but, but love withdrawal could include, you know, I am so disgusted with you. I don't want anything to do with you until you can be a better child than you are today. And so we pull away our goodwill, our time together, our affection, but it has subtler forms too. Sometimes Time out is love withdrawal. When we confine a child in a way that says, I want nothing to do with you, you have really disgusted me, that's a, that's a form of love withdrawal. Love withdrawal um, has um, mixed results. It tends to make children feel guilty. It's not very good at getting compliance, um, but it, it isn't as destructive as power assertion is. Now, there's um, a, a third control technique that fortunately is a lot more effective than the two we've described. That is induction. Induction is where we reason with children and help them understand the effect of their behavior on others. So um, let's think of an example. Maybe the child has been playing with neighbor children and got angry and grabbed toys from the other children and caused a little bit of a ruckus on the playground. And we could put them in timeout. We could punish them. We could lecture them, but what, what induction does instead is say, hey, you really, you really wanted to be involved. You wanted that toy or whatever it is we think the child's objective was. See, that's the compassion part, isn't it? Mm-hmm. That's why we really try to enter their world and say, hey, okay, what you did uh, makes sense when I try to understand it. Now, it may not be right. It may not be productive, but I understand it. And then in induction, we say, um, how well did that work for you? Did, did it work out for you? And the child, the um, astute child will say, no, it, uh, 
just made a big fight. And uh, in the end, we all got mad and we all left and nobody had fun. He said, yeah, wow. I'm glad you are aware of that because, you know, um, it, that didn't work very well. Can you think of anything else that might work better? So, so induction is really about reasoning with children and helping them understand the effect of their behavior on others. And notice the two parts. It's that calm reasoning. I think that entails entering their world, but it's also helping them understand how their actions impact others. Now, can you see how that trains us to use our agency better? It gets us learn learn to be more mindful, to think about others, and to think about how our actions will impact them and how our actions will impact their emotions. So it makes us more emotionally intelligent and it makes us more wise in our interactions. Wow, I'm thinking about how <laughs> really that's a gift to our kids. Like you're saying, you're you're helping them kind of up their EQ, um, their their emotional intelligence, and that skill of being able to tune into others mm, yeah. to teach our children that skill. How important and what a gift that is. Yeah, for them later in life, they'll do well. It it, it will benefit them in many areas. I'm sure. So if parents are able to do that with children, they're really coaching them towards greater awareness of their social world around them. And when they don't do that, then children kind of fumble along and create enemies and set up patterns that aren't very productive. It makes such a difference when parents are willing to do that kind of emotion coaching or that kind of induction where you're helping children to be aware of others and their needs, not in a guilt-inducing way. It's not about, mm -hmm. how can you be so insensitive? No, it's about saying, yeah, I wonder, I wonder why so-and-so didn't want to share that toy with you. I wonder what that was about. And at some point, your child may say, well, I guess they were using it and having fun. Say, oh, wow. Yeah, that, I think you're right. I wonder what else you could have done. So that whole process could, can take such a different path from the one we usually put it on of, of guilt, accusation, blame, and punishment. Yeah, and it sounds too like it's it's showing them, it's modeling for them how to be more creative. Uh, and um, Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. That's really cool. Creative. Stuff. Don't you love that? Mm -hmm. When you can see possibilities in relationships, think how it prepares them not only for friendship, but ultimately for marriage. So that they then say, oh, you know, my partner does what she does for reasons that make sense, even if I don't fully understand them. And if I tune in, if I pay attention, I will come to really understand my partner and be able to respond much more helpfully, much more compassionately. Mm -hmm. Now, the, the frustration with this whole area of guidance is it needs probably about, oh, two years of discussion. I mean, you know, it's a, it's a whole field uh, by itself to try to understand um, how we learn to be effective at activating agency in our children. Mm -hmm. um, but, but I think that ties to what for me is the definition of good parenting. Um, this is for me the story that really defines what quality parenting is. It's about a guy who was about my age and decided he needed to take better care of his health. And so, so he he made a whole bunch of resolves and uh, he said, you know, I don't need to go to the bakery every morning and I'm going to walk some more, etc." And he even shared his new plan with his coworkers. One day he showed up at work carrying this enormous and very rich coffee cake. 
picture it covered with uh, you know pecans and brown sugar and just you know just a delight and he shows up at work with this coffee cake and his co-workers chided him and said hey we thought you turned over a new leaf and he said well normally i don't go past the bakery anymore i just don't even go past it but this morning i found myself right in front in front of the bakery and i looked up and in the window i saw this coffee cake and i said i said lord if you want me to have that coffee cake make a parking place for me right in front of the bakery. <laughs> and he said, sure enough, on the eighth time around the block, <laughs> there was the parking place. Now, you might well ask what that has to do with parenting. And, and I would say great parents are those, not who make no mistakes, but those who will, are willing to keep going around the block. They say, oh, I didn't do that just right. And I wonder what I could do differently next time. And they keep going around the block and around the block until they get the coffee cake or they find a way of communicating with their children and loving their children and understanding their children that's more effective. And it may involve, you know, inviting their spouse to say, hey, help me understand so-and-so. They don't make any sense to me. Or it may involve just praying and asking God for some insight and compassion. But um, I guess that's, that's the um, culminating point, Emily, is that Great parenting is about going around the block. It's nothing that anyone gets right the first time. Mm-hmm. It's about being willing to keep going around the block. And that it's worth it because at the end, there's a sweet treat. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Connect with our kids. And, and uh, I love that. I love that story. Okay. So can we, can we recap a little bit? Sure. We've got four principles. I heard be a healthy person. Purposeful parents make better parents. Uh-huh. I heard have compassion because compassion connects our worlds to theirs. Yes. Um, The third one I heard nurturing. So feeling safe and valued is, is really the key to, to development. And then I heard guide helping our children learn to use their agency. And in there was uh, three kinds of control. Now I got power, assertive Mm -hmm. induction. And what was the third one? What was the third kind of control? The uh, one in between was love withdrawal. Oh, love withdrawal. withdrawal, including sometimes some forms of timeout where we where we communicate to the child that, you know, I just don't really enjoy being with you when you're that kind of person. Mm-hmm. Okay. And and contrast that with, I think, the way the way uh, God treats us. I, in my experience, God's always available. Now, I may shut him out, but God is always there to say, son, let's, um, let's keep going around the block because I know where the coffee cake is. I hope one of the things that uh, parents will also do is talk to the people they know who are the most respected parents and get ideas from them, learn from them. Because, wow, I don't think there's anything harder we ever do in life than um, raising children. And um, and it deserves our, our best effort to become good parents. We hope you enjoyed this episode with Dr. Wally on a fresh view of gospel living. I have a favor to ask. If you love this podcast, remember to subscribe to it. And if you feel called, please leave us a review and share it with a loved one. Reviews really matter because they help us spread the word about this project. Thank you for joining us today. Until next time, take care.